welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast. We are uh, here in the studio with our special guest today, Dr. Sona Demigian, who we're very, very delighted to have here. Uh, Sona is an associate professor at the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her research addresses the treatment and prevention of depression with a particular focus on the mental health of women. She's a leading expert in cognitive and behavioral approaches to depression, as well as the clinical application of contemplative practices. She has developed a novel behavioral and mindfulness-based intervention for promoting mental health and well-being among at-risk pregnant women and mothers. Her long-standing interest in the dissemination of empirically supported treatments and evidence-based practice has led to the important discoveries regarding effective interventions in the U.S., and the extension of such interventions to low- and middle-income countries internationally. She's the co-author of two books on treating depression, one focused on adults and other on adolescents, the editor of a forthcoming book, Evidence-Based Practice in Action, which aims to support the integration of science and mental health settings, and the co-author of Workbook for Mothers, The Mindful Path to Well-Being During Pregnancy and Early Motherhood. We are delighted to have you here today, Sona. I am delighted to be here today. Thank you for being part of this with us. Yes, thank you for being here. And Danny, I cannot believe you memorized that whole thing. It that was, was astounding, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. I, just, I took one glance. Yeah, you know, I took one glance. It's what I do, Angelo, and I'm far too <laughs> modest to, to admit my brilliance and memory. But yes, no, it's so great. And, you know, you, you read that, and I, I read your bio, and if I were reading that someplace else, I might think, oh my gosh, this person's so smart, has done so much, can I even have a conversation with her? And the beauty of, I, I've gotten to know Sona, we've worked on a couple projects together, is that you do have this tendency, Sona, to be able to take really complicated information and an understanding of a breadth of information and be able to put it in language that people understand. And so I really appreciate that about you, and just we're thrilled to have you on the show today. Well, I am thrilled to be here, and I would actually um, probably give a briefer bio, um, <laughs> which would say that I am someone who cares a lot about people's mental health and well-being, and about using the tools of science to identify what are the best practices that will help people be well and stay well over time. And that matters to me, you know, right here at home and all around the world. Absolutely. So that's yeah. that would be my summary. Okay. Well, that's a lot easier. Yeah, I, that's beautifully I, I, I said. Could, and I could memorize that too. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, we're, I'm really curious uh, about, you know, I think a lot of people know what therapy is in general. They have some vague idea of what mindfulness is. Mm-hmm. Um but can you talk a little bit about the relationship between mindfulness, therapy, well-being, and kind of what you've been seeing in your work mm-hmm. that's most important to you or to kind of to explain that to people? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I guess I would start with um, our knowledge that a lot of people in this country and around the world struggle with mental health in one form or other. Um, problems like depression, anxiety, substance use problems are super common. And the vast majority of people who struggle with those types of experiences don't get help. And even among the people who do get help, often don't get the kind of help that we know from um, scientific studies that uh, have been conducted is the kind of help that really works. And so we're left with this huge um, gap uh, in this country 
um, between people who really need help and support and help and support that works. And so that is true both when people are struggling like with, uh, I would say like an acute episode of depression or really in the throes of anxiety or substance use types of problems. But it also is true when for people who might be at risk for those kinds of problems. And we have tools now that can help people who, who are at risk and want to learn strategies to essentially keep themselves well over time. And that to me is this amazing, offers this amazing possibility that um, through learning practices and incorporating those in the context of your daily life, that, that for many people can dramatically reduce their risk of getting depressed again in the future, struggling with the you know intensity of anxiety or um, relapsing with substance use. So, and a lot of those um, skills and practices we're learning um, uh, really use the. Uh, power of mindfulness and other contemplative practices as as a core element. Um, so it really has a lot, I think, to offer in terms of when we look at the question of what can we do that will help people create enduring well-being in it their really, lives. It's, it's fascinating because it, what I thought of when you were saying that is that we've come a long way in this country about physical health and being proactive, the mm -hmm. things that you can do before you have disease, the things you can do before you have a heart attack, um, ways to deal with diet, things like that. But psychology and our inner being um, has been behind that. And we've yes. had that discussion before. W what are some of the things that we are seeing proactively that people can do before they hit acute stages or who are even predisposed to these yeah. types of things? So it's a great question. So um, a lot of the work that I have done um, has focused on women during pregnancy and the postpartum. And one of the things that we know is that we can identify um, women who are at elevated risk of becoming depressed during that transition in their lives um, by in really simple ways. So just simply asking someone, have you had other times when, in your life when you have experienced depression will help us identify the level of risk someone has. And for women who do have that history, who enter, who enter pregnancy having been depressed in the past, they can experience uh, double the risk of the general population. So we know in really simple ways how to identify women who are at increased risk. And this is true in the general population too. So a lot of what I'll be talking about are s from studies that we've done during pregnancy and postpartum. But we, I, with my colleagues and many other people around the world, have studied these interventions with the general population too. So they, these points, I think, have broad applicability. Um, so we know by asking simple questions how to identify people who are at elevated risk. And often what we find is that um, people really want to learn strategies to help protect themselves. Like they, there's a, a, an interest, even a hunger, for what can I do that will help me stay well, that will help me be the kind of parent I want to be, be the kind of partner I want to be, be the person I want to be at work. So, um, and an interesting, uh, let me, I'm going to come back to your question, sure but no kind problem. of interesting no side note is that, you know, one of the things that's true in our healthcare system today is that 
Our mo the most common intervention that we offer for, let's say, depression as an example, the most common intervention that we offer is antidepressant medication, which can be helpful um, for many people and is an important part of a kind of package of care for many people. But we have, there is no evidence whatsoever that antidepressant medication will work if you're not taking it. So it doesn't help you prevent depression from coming back into the future, coming back in the future, um, unless you continue to take it over time. Now, what the kinds of training approaches that we've been studying, what they offer in contrast, is um, this capacity to provide enduring benefit even after you've finished the formal training or the formal course. So the course that we um, have studied most is this program called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, which is this really interesting synthesis of mindfulness meditation practices with cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's basically an eight-week class that um, people come together to learn as a group, and we actually have created a web-based version of this where um, you can kind of do it from the comfort of your own home and be part of a uh, a, a kind of virtual community of people. But it's an eight-week curriculum that begins with um, a really simple practice, which is mindful eating. So in the work that we do um, with women during pregnancy, uh, you know, we say, like, mindfulness, you know, we, we start in the kitchen. It doesn't require any kind of like special trips to fancy stores for special ingredients. Or like, a fountain or to burn a particular incense. It's just nope. right here, right now in your kitchen. Exactly. Like walk into the kitchen in the classes that we um, deliver in person. We um, pass around a raisin, which is a practice um, from mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a program that John Kabat-Zinn developed. Um, in the online program or when we guide, you know, women through these um, practices at home, we say literally, like, walk into your kitchen, grab something to eat. And that is the first practice, bringing awareness to this activity that we do every single day, multiple times a day. And yet we help to guide people through the steps of actually bringing awareness to what does it feel like to eat? Like, what, what do you notice with regard to taste? What, is, what are the sounds that are present? What do you see? And really bringing awareness to the different constituents of the experience of eating. And then from there, that lays this foundation that's so important, which is basically, as you were just saying, like, you don't need anything fancy, anything special, anything that's outside of who you are and what you have in this moment to learn the foundation of this practice. And then we expand from that to beginning to learn in really kind of guided, carefully guided, closely guided ways. So there is that support and that scaffolding to become aware of what do you feel in your body? And that that itself becomes this important foundation. And then move from there to begin to work with the kinds of thoughts and emotions that can be really risky for people who struggle with depression or anxiety. Um, and how do you begin to work with those in ways that are skillful, where you can bring the same qualities of noticing that you used with, you know, uh, uh, it, with the experience of eating, you can bring those same qualities of noticing to the kinds of 
thoughts, emotions, and situations that in the past for many people were like um, a kind of accelerator down a slippery slope back into depression. It's really interesting because I know in the work that that we do, oftentimes we're working with people post-acute states Mm -hmm. or who are um, uh, entering into recovery, uh, have gone through a, a period of time of struggle, and yet exactly what you're talking about, it seems like what we try to do sort of post-acute care, right? Right. Where gaining a level of consciousness, gaining a level of awareness, even in simple things as you're saying, yeah. like eating, because eating's very unconscious for a lot of us. Absolutely. It's like, grab something, and, rah, rah, rah. and yep. it's so, well, why do I need to be conscious when I eat? Well, slowing things down, basically what we're talking about is raising consciousness, raising awareness, even in the most mundane tasks, yep. right? What's what's new and what's kind of interesting is that, so you're seeing evidence that even doing that earlier when people are of higher risk mm-hmm. actually has an effect. In it absolutely has an effect. So in the study that we did, um, uh, that doing that course protected 80% of the women from getting depressed. Um, through six months postpartum, in contrast to 50% of women who didn't receive the course experienced depression. So that's a pretty big and uh, an important advantage that we are able to offer in terms of uh, protection. Seems like the type of thing we want to be able to teach at a younger and younger age, actually. Yes. And that's, you know, it's important. It's, uh, yeah, and, you know, it's it's one of the reasons for me that working with women during pregnancy and postpartum has h- held such strong appeal because um, it offers the possibility that it actually, you know, the, the reason, one of the reasons that I became interested in working with um, women during this particular stage in life was I was really studying depression more generally in the population and I led one of these eight-week courses and there was this woman who um, would talk during the classes about her experience of doing the practices with her toddler Um, and she would talk about her daughter and how they would you know lie on the bed at night and do this practice that we call the body scan where you move your awareness you know in a systematic way through the body and she would do it and her little girl would be lying next to her doing it too and they would have these mindful you know eating snacks together and and I just loved you know hearing about the way in which she was extending this into her family life going the next generation totally going the next generation and at the end of the class she came up to me and said you know this has really been you know deeply um a a really deeply impactful influential experience in my life and I feel really grateful the only thing is that I really wish I had learned this before my daughter was born Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. what to, to imagine the kind of um, suffering that that could have reduced or spared us um, during those first few years was was really a big thing for her. And it was like a light bulb went off for me in thinking, yes, yeah. we need to understand how to do this, how to do this well, the extent to which this can help women. And that's where the piece of science comes in because you know, what we ask people to do in these courses is a lot. You know, we ask people to practice mindfulness, um, 
meditation practices every day, you know, for 30 to 40 minutes every day. So, you know, when you're pregnant, when you have a toddler, when you're working, when you're, you know, doing life, doing life at whatever phase of life you're at, that's the, that's the big ask. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the tools of science really come in because they help us to know, like, is that worth it? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I want to know that, you know, if I'm going to spend a half an hour every day Mm -hmm. doing something, I want to know that it's something that's going to bring benefit and and to me and to other people. So that's what the kinds of studies that we do are able to to begin to um, really provide that um, validation and some proof that this stuff works. Yes, that brings up another point and a question that I've wondered about in you know, mindfulness itself, obviously the word mindfulness has mm-hmm. become a large word, in some ways a buzzword, whatever. But, and, 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 and oftentimes is associated with, I'm thinking about not in Boulder. In Boulder you say mindfulness and it's kind of like McDonald's someplace else, right? Yeah. So people really understand mindfulness, generally speaking. But when, if you're someplace else and you hear mindfulness, there's this kind of association of either a religious context or somehow that's far, just an Eastern practice type of a thing, or I've heard it called Mm woo-woo, these kinds of things. So, but really, when I hear you speak of it and when I practice it myself, what we're talking about are very simple acts. We're not talking about things that have a denomination per se. I mean, some may have that just like a church has a prayer, you know, part, but it's not, you know, talk a little bit about mindfulness. How how do you define mindfulness? I define it in the way that we teach it as a skill. It's a skill that can be learned. And so in all the, it, 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 um, oh, I have two thoughts. Your question makes me think of two things. So one is how I define mindfulness um, in the way that we teach us is a skill. And what's important about that is it means that um, it, it, it's, it is simple. It's not easy, mm-hmm. but it is simple. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to, it, it can have those kinds of connotations in other contexts, but that's not what we're teaching when we teach it in this context. It is a skill for learning to look after yourself, to care for yourself, in the present moment and to care for yourself in the future. So it's a very simple and practical skill, I would say, um, which requires repeated practice and guidance and support in learning. Mm -hmm. Um, The other point that I want to make in relation to your question is that in the program that we teach and have studied, it's not just mindfulness. So it is mindfulness, as I said in the beginning, integrated with the tools of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's a really important part to to hold on to because the word mindfulness has, um, it's super popular these days, right? So sometimes when I give talks, I show um, images of magazines and, <laughs> you know, from the media where it's sort of like mindfulness can do anything, right? right? right. And that, I think, actually is an attitude that can be harmful mm-hmm. because basically what it suggests is that um, you don't need anything else other than this. And I would say that for people who are struggling, have struggled with the kinds of problems that we're talking about, 
you know, addiction, depression, anxiety, that mindfulness is a critical component, but it's not the only component. And we need to be really clear about where um, the ways in which it can offer benefit and and the ways in which something else is necessary. Mm -hmm. So like at the end of the course or the latter half of the course that we teach, we do a lot of work around um, cognitive behavioral skills that have to do with um, asking for help from other people. Mm -hmm. And mindfulness is a foundation there so that you're aware of what it is you're experiencing, where you're struggling, what is needed and what would be a benefit and how to ask in ways that are you know, thoughtful and attentive to the other person. But for a lot of people actually asking for help is a, is a skill that itself needs to be developed and that requires guidance and training because for a lot of us, and this is true of many people in the helping profession, you know, (laughs) who went in to help other people, that actually bringing that awareness to yourself and realizing, oh, I need help here too. Mm -hmm. Or for many people who are parents who are oriented to like, what can I do that's best for my child? Actually looking inward and realizing, oh, there's, there are ways in which I'm struggling or I need support in this moment. So those are skills that we pull from cognitive behavioral therapy, looking at, say, what are the myths that people may hold around asking for help? You know, like, I should be able to do this. You know, like, other people can handle this without help. Um, Asking for help is a sign of weakness. Um, There's something wrong with me if I need to reach out, or there's something wrong with me for struggling with you know, the kinds of thoughts that are connected to depression or anxiety. So that's a really, um, that's a core part of it. It's equally core to learning the skill of paying attention to your breath or what you feel in your body. For people that may be just completely new to what we're talking about, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what mindfulness actually is. Like, what are those skills? You talked about it some in terms of doing a body scan mm-hmm. or watching what you're eating. But for someone really who just has no idea, yeah. what is it? And similarly, when we mention cognitive behavioral therapy, for mm-hmm. someone that hasn't been exposed to that, it sounds right. cognitive <laughs> behavioral <laughs> therapy. Like, well, am I going to therapy? And they're like yeah. messing with my brain or my behaviors. Like, yeah. what? Should I do that with my dog? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like, um, can you help? share kind of specifically what those skills are and how they work together. I love that question. Um, So, yeah, let me take the, let me work backwards with your question. So, um, so really cognitive behavioral, the skills that we use in this class, I think of as their life skills. That's what it is. That's what you're learning. And part of, um, A big part of that involves how to work with your thoughts and with actions in skillful ways. So let me give you some concrete examples. So one would be identifying the kinds of myths that we just talked about that might get in the way, which are really thoughts, right? Like they're thoughts that we you know, pick up from the media that we learn in school, that maybe were present in our family and been handed down for generations. And they might be those kinds of thoughts that sort of just hover around in our 
experience and we don't even name them for what they are. So so that's a big part of it is is actually naming and identifying what those thoughts are and then beginning to have a different relationship with them, one that um, is informed by awareness and choice so that I might notice, oh, I'm having that, oh, there's that thought. Um, uh, I have to do all this by my, I have to do this on my own. Mm-hmm. It's not okay to ask other people mm-hmm. for help. Mm-hmm. And so I notice, like, oh, there's that thought. And, and um, that thought has had a lot of power mm-hmm. in my life. And yet in this moment, I can do something differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I could call my friend or I could call this person I work with and say, you know, I'm really stuck. Can you help me with this? Mm-hmm. So that that's the sort of like integration moment of mindfulness and the quote cognitive part, uh-huh. right? Of becoming aware of the thoughts. The behavior part might be like one of the things that we ask people to do. It's a kind of core practice of behavior therapy. People have been doing it in different ways, you know, for decades and decades. Um, and, you know, it can sound, you know, as you were saying, like the term like behavior therapy, it sounds like this, you know, I don't know if I want that in my life. Uh-huh. Right. And yet, so here's what, here's what it is. It's writing down. What did you do yesterday? Hmm. That's it. Like sit, take a moment, pull out a piece of paper and write down what was the very first thing that you did? Do you remember? Or even today, what was the first thing that you did this morning? Picked up my two kids and carried them down the stairs. Excellent. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and then what? And then... Um, Told them to be quiet so mom could continue sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> and tried to continue, continue... I tried to convince them to, like, maybe just, like, nap on the couch with me. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have to get up either. <laughs> <laughs> so you picked up your two kids. How old are your kids? Three and one. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So you picked them up, carried them downstairs, and kind of snuggled on the couch, yeah. like wishing for a few more moments uh-huh. of sl- slumber. Exactly. But that didn't go very well, did it, Angela? <laughs> it doesn't go that well. <laughs> and then what was the next thing you did? Coffee. Made an espresso. Okay. Excellent. And then how about after that? Um, I went for a run. Okay, so the, so that in that span of time was probably what like an hour, uh-huh. hour and a yeah. half, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so what we would do is ask people to start just as you did and write it down on a piece of paper. And I think the writing it down part is important. Um, then to go back to you, so you have those activities, and then you do like if we wanted to spend the time, we do up until this moment that we're in right now, mm-hmm. or you could do this from yesterday. Then to go back to those activities and note them as either N activities, which indicates nourishing, mm-hmm. or D activities, which indicates depleting. Hmm. So, you want to give it a try? They were really, so, uh, they were all nourishing. With kids they were all they're nourishing. Both, yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. So you might give all of those ends, right? Mm-hmm. And there may be moments within those that there was a little bit of a D, yeah. right? So maybe that moment when you realized, like, oh man, I'm not getting any more sleep. <laughs> yeah, like, the only thing that seems <laughs> depleting was like my resistance. Yes. The only deplete, the only depleting was really, 
if I was like, uh, you know, that's and it's like, why? Why even waste the time on being like, uh, it's like yeah. your beautiful kids want to hang out with you. Yes, that's such a beautiful example because so in that moment, you maybe you get down on the couch and you're and you kind of the reality sets in that, OK, the day has begun. You know, sleep time is over. We're not getting back there no matter what I do, how much I try and keep them <laughs> next to me on the couch. Like we're up. So that might be a moment, even a brief one, that's kind of an N and a D together. Mm -hmm. And so what you can realize from doing that, so that's behavior therapy. It sounds really, you know, technical and kind of impersonal. Just and observing my behavior. It's observing your behavior and, and the link between what you do and how you feel. And then using that information, that tracking to begin to make choices about how you might want to shift that. Which is the cognitive part. What, it's just still even the behavioral, behavioral. part, mm -hmm. right? So someone might like have a day that has a whole lot of Ds in it, right? Like it's a lot of depletion. And one of the things we might want to do is look at like, well, are there ways that that can be shifted? Are there ways that by bringing an awareness to actually, you know, when you walk into the office, you've got like a series of five hours that are like depleting, 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 depleting. And what is it that, how, how can we work together to begin to kind of mix that up a little bit, to bring a little more nourishment or shift the balance there? In other cases, it might be bringing the skill of mindfulness to the moment, and your example was a beautiful one, of it's not so much about changing the, um, the activity itself, it's about changing your relationship to it. So moving from um, fighting against waking up and starting the day with your kids, you know, and kind of bracing against that, like, oh, you know, or like grasping for a few more moments of sleep, <laughs> which every parent I know can relate to. Um, but actually to turn towards it, to open yourself to it, to maybe, you know, literally open, you know, like kind of scoop up your kids in an open embrace or walk with them to the kitchen and to really um, accept that that's where you are. And in that moment of accepting for you, actually allowed the joy of connecting with your kids that that was also available there that's a part where that and that I would say is is that weaving of mindfulness into the you know kind of behavior therapy part of it and what's so cool about this practice is that that moment where you noticed that you were struggling against what was happening and 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 opened up to it uh, embraced it even that moment that's a skill that you were using and that skill can be strengthened in these really everyday mindfulness practices so it can be strengthened by <clears throat> like I gave you that example of the raisin right mindful eating a lot of people don't like raisins Right. So they might have in that experience of eating a raisin might really experience a lot of like, oh, this is gross. And it's all like <laughs> squishy and sticky and like, you know, or really dry. And 
Um, and so um, that provides this opportunity to notice like, oh, here's what it feels like to not like something. Or here's what it feels like. Or I know that maybe someone might have the thought like, oh, everyone else likes raisins. Um, but, uh, you know, this, uh, this is how it always goes for me. I always get, you know, the uh, raisins, the raisins. <laughs> in, in my lunch, right? which I don't like. Exactly. And my parents gave it to me. <laughs> there they you don't go. know me. You got exactly. And we just go on and on and on. <laughs> it seems like, and this is, you know, I'm kind of not, I'm not. I'm not a really smart person, so I put these things in like in simple line. But here, here's what I'm getting from what you're saying. Yeah. Tell me if I'm close. It's kind of like when we're depressed, yeah, or we enter into addiction or yeah. behavioral patterns that are making us unhappy. Right. I don't have the relationship I want with this person I used to be in love with. Yes. I don't have a relationship of trust with my kids. I keep coming into the same thing. I swore I would never yell or put yep. them on the iPod so that I didn't have to deal with them. And also, and I find myself doing these things, mm-hmm. even though. It's, it's, it's going against my values, mm-hmm. for example. The way that we get out of this, the way that we do something different is a couplefold. Mm-hmm. But the main part of it mm-hmm. is raising our level of consciousness mm-hmm. because we have all this unconscious, the unknown stuff running the show. Yeah. So as the unknown stuff becomes more known, then we have an awareness which allows us the possibility to make different choices. What's difficult there is that we often we can have the awareness raise up. And so now I'm aware of it. What the hell do I do with it? I'm aware that I'm dysregulated and yeah. doing this and I'm aware where it comes from. But how do I have a different relationship with yes. it? And that's where practice comes in. That is 100% where practice comes in and where the concrete tools of, you know, pr- of the learning skills like how do you ask for help in a effective way that's where that comes into so yes that i agree a hundred percent and even that moment of awareness that you're talking about that is something that you can cultivate through practice every day it's not something that like you know, you have and I don't have or I have and you don't have this is a capacity that we all have and we can strengthen it. I love that. I love that because I think in other ways in the marketing end of these things is that you have to go away to get it in hopes that you bring it back with you. And, you know, I've gone on retreats. They're great. Like there's some wonderful things that can come with it. But at the end of the day, it's the chopping the wood and the carrying the water that sustain us. So like I'm real enlightened sitting by myself in a tent, but when my kids are making fun of my outfits and yelling <laughs> and it's true and calling me Dan instead Who of dad. Make fun of your oh, outfits. they love it. They love it. They just go on and on, but I can become very dysregulated. Yeah. The eight year old and me can be, can feel that way. So it's, it's practicing and finding out different ways of yeah. doing it. Sometimes it's just a breath. Sometimes it's saying nothing. Right. But it's like having this awareness that I'm actually being triggered. And something else that you said is that it's actually in some ways making friends with it rather Mm -hmm. than this attitude towards, oh, I always feel this way. And so it's kind of being victimized by your own experience over and over again. It's this idea that, yeah, I'm having a lot of angry feelings right now. Mm -hmm. And not to try to push it away, but to, to be real about that. Yeah to be able to make other choices of how I want to do it, to hopefully be less hurtful. Yes, to- it, it, I, absolutely. And it, 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 
it is a really important entry to the answer to your first question, which is like, what is the mindfulness? And I think of it as it is the sort of integrated skills of attending, knowing what's happening, holding that in this wider space of awareness. So it's like, um, yeah, holding it in a wider space of awareness and being friendly with it as opposed to harsh and critical and judgmental. And that can be noticing what's happening in in, an interaction with another person or noticing, um, you know, feelings and thoughts and sensations within yourself. Because what happens is when you are not holding that wider awareness, what happens is it's really easy to start to elaborate on the sort of story of mm. of your experience mm. and so it could be like you could notice um oh i'm like you could notice the sensations of what you're describing as dysregulation right like you could notice maybe you're like you know ha- flushed in the face and hot, hot and, and yeah. you know feeling like that ju- you're just at the moment before you blow you my know, top there you go yeah. <laughs> before you blow your top and yet if you if you it's that capacity to notice that happening and to in a sense step back and and see that as a whole process in and of itself instead of something that's like consuming you mm-hmm. right because what happens then is that you begin to amplify it to add to it um my as someone who's been a really wonderful mentor for me um it, w- it was uh, kind of a informal advisor um, in graduate school who I worked with a lot is Marsha Linehan, who developed this therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. And she always says, which I think is so true, is that emotions love themselves. So that if you're having the I'm blowing my top set of emotions, like you, your whole being is wired up to like do more blowing your top, right? So you start to think of all the moments of unfairness and injustice that you've experienced and all the things that... And it just feeds on yeah, itself. It just feeds on and itself. And you can get a lot of support from others with that, too. You know, there's oh, a yeah. lot of... You know, our society's good at that. Yes, and you, you know, know you... I, You know, we all do. We know the people to go to who you could go to and say, like, can you believe this? You know, my kids said this to but me. But they or, didn't. <laughs> and you that, don't deserve that. And that How person will say that. And then all of a sudden that anger or frustration is, has increased, right? So that's the way in which emotions love themselves. They create these like self-perpetuating loops. So the mindfulness part, the stepping back is like, oh, I notice all these like the flush, the feeling like I'm going to blow my top sensations. And I can see all that happening. I, I, I step back from it, not in a not in a way that is um, like in denial or, or dissociating. Yep, yeah. not that, but but really like there's space between me and that experience and that third piece, which is, and I can practice. And this is the part where I think the practice part is so important because, you know, in my experience for myself and a lot of the people I work with, this is, it's a lifelong practice, especially that third piece, which is, I can practice being friendly with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it may be like you go moment by moment in and out of that third piece. It's like, oh, I hate feeling this way. Mm -hmm. And then, 
oh, right, I'm practicing being a little more gentle. Mm-hmm. Is our mental health in direct proportion to the space between our impulse and our action? I think it's a really important part. You I know, think it's a key. I don't I, think it's the whole thing, just I'll, as we've been saying. Yeah, yeah, but it seems like a lot of people's idea of mental health is I will not have impulse. Yeah. Which, as long as you're on this planet, and unless you're 100% enlightened, like, right, like I might have the impulse to honk my horn and road rage at somebody, but if I have some space, I don't have to actually do that. Yeah. And it's kind of making the idea of making friends with this thing, or like, I want to yell at my kids. Like, I mean, I, I say this with other people, like, there are times when, like, my kid, I adore my children. They're probably going <laughs> to listen to this. I do. And every, anybody who knows me knows that. And I love them. And you have adorable children. Thank you so much. But, and, 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 and there are moments where I want to hurt them because I feel hurt or I'm angry yeah. and I have an impulse of like, you yeah. know. And so the more I practice some of these things you're mm-hmm. talking about, the more there's just a little bit of space. And then yeah. that space hopefully gets a little bit bigger. And and that's where the, I mean I think you're right that's where the practice part really, yeah. really comes in and I think that's where the part of being connected with other people is also really important in the practice mm-hmm. because I think one of the things that we can learn through this is that we all struggle right you know we right. are not not no one individual is alone in these experiences and just the simple knowing of that is huge it is huge it is really, really critical. Um, these are these patterns that we're talking about. Everyone struggles with them mm-hmm. in one way or another, mm-hmm. at one point or another. Mm-hmm. And so, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you mm-hmm. as a person, as a parent, as a partner. It just means that you're human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're all we all come to terms with that, you know, in these like moments when we when we are holding ourselves to some standard of perfection that is simply not compatible with being a human being (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly what i love so much about what you're doing in this course and what your research is and it sounds like your mission is Mm. is this integration between the mindfulness and the skills yeah um and I mean, I just couldn't support enough what you're saying because, and I can think of, you know, these themes, they're not, clearly they're a part of your research and a part of psychology, but they're a part of so many different parts of uh, society and existence. I mean, there's mindfulness and meditation and prayer that are part of religions and other groups. There are other types, there are all types of skills, right, based on the way that you describe cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. around, you know, observing what you're doing um, and then trying to make different choices about it. I mean, there's a whole self-help and personal development yes. industry that basically is that, right? I mean, and some motivation. Um, but I think as we've all seen, we've seen people that have been really devoted to, you know, maybe just mindfulness or just meditation right. or just prayer, and they're able to come to peace around things, um, but they they don't always have the skills yeah. to navigate, right. to be able to, to really change something in their life. Similarly, people get all kinds of skills and then they start like applying them to things like <laughs> a, it's like a, it's like their new sledgehammer, yeah. you know, like they're examining their life, but it's there, there's not enough kind of core awareness and mm-hmm. mindfulness to be able to make real impact and bridging those together just seems like such a gift that you're offering. So and brave new frontier. It's great. It's, well, really good. it's a total gift to be able to do this work actually it's really i um 
I tell my graduate students this and actually the undergrads with whom I work and I don't know that they always believe me but I really do think I have the absolute best job in the world um, because even though it can be intense and you know there's a kind of um, unrelenting nature to the need the pressure of the need of the work that needs to be done it is such a incredible gift to be able to work directly with people in the ways that we're talking about and to be able to conduct have the opportunity to conduct the kinds of studies that can um, provide the evidence that will be a guide in these broader ways for people in the world and so it's I, I am the recipient of huge gifts so <laughs> if it um, and you know it really is this um, kind of reciprocal process mm. of you know being able to offer this knowledge and having the blessing of, you know, being able to be involved in um, creating these kinds of interventions and developing them and and finding out what works and for whom. And, and there's so much that we don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, we have studied these forms of learning these skills, which, which are in the forms of mindfulness meditation and take the forms of, say, sitting meditation where you're, you know, where you engage with breathing as the focus of your attention, there's a huge amount. My guess is that, you know, over time we will learn that there are many different ways that people can develop these core skills. And for some people, they may be, you know, that daily practice of us, you know, sitting meditation may be absolutely essential. For other people, it may be in other forms that are, you know, equally essential. And I think there there's huge amount of um, potential for learning of the kinds of, you know, ways of um, interacting with other people mindfully, you know, um, engaging with creative pursuits like, you know, music and dance and, you know, um, visual arts and, um, Con- and conscious exercising, you know, hiking, different things. That, absolutely. You know. Being in nature and mm-hmm. connecting with our natural world and, you know, kind of the piece I was saying earlier, which, you know, for me, you know, the work that I do is itself a form of mindfulness practice um and so you know we have a lot to learn and i think um uh we we have a really solid understanding at this point of what some of the key skills are and some vehicles for learning and daily practice um and there's a lot left to learn about ways to help facilitate the development of those skills in among everyone who needs it well we'll keep keep following it and um and you'll come back again and talk to us about this sometime. i would love to sona thank you so much for coming here today really really appreciate having you thank you for all the work you're doing and um sharing these kinds of studies and practices and this knowledge with the world it's it's making change is um is so important and and doing that effectively requires a lot of partnership and shared effort so i am really grateful to you both for for this program thank you so much thank you so much all right thanks for tuning in everybody we will uh get at you next time appreciate you tuning in to the integrated health podcast